Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Welcome everybody. This is Finance and History, the podcast of the European Association for Banking and Financial History, EABH in short, one of the world's leading networks for financial history research. My name is Carmen Hofmann, and I'm Secretary General of the organization. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about the business of business history with my guest from Stockholm, Sweden, Anders Schürmann. Anders carries dual duties at the Center for Business History in Stockholm. He is the company's head of communication and also its head of client projects. He'll explain to us how those two roles overlap today. And above all, he will show us how the Center for Business History has made a business and a profitable one too, out of helping companies preserve their history and share their heritage. Welcome, Anders. Thank you so much for having me. Before we dig deeper into your company's business, so what you do and why it matters for the world of finance and financial history, let me tell our listeners some facts about the Center for Business History in Sweden, which holds the archives of approximately 7,000 Swedish companies and 75,000 shelf meters of archives. You preserve Swedish business history since 1974 and you turn historical material into a strategic asset for business development. But what exactly is it you do, and, and why are your archives special? We are, in, in its simplest form, and what's behind those catchphrases that you mentioned, we are an outsourced archive solution for Swedish companies. And we understand that in a, in a European and international context, we are a little bit of an odd bird. Most companies keep their own archives. But the development in Sweden for a variety of reasons over the past 40, 50 years has led to the formation of independent archive providers. And some are more on the storage end of it, and some are more on the full research and providing more than just archive solutions. Just a very quick history. We were formed in 1974, hence preserving Swedish business history since 1974. We take care of about 7,000 Swedish corporate archives. 7,000 archives sounds a lot. It is a lot, but behind those are 500 uh, member companies who are members in the association that is our ultimate owner, which is a nonprofit. So we are a very commercial activity, but we're owned by a nonprofit organization. And the nonprofit organization is the one that has as its leading paragraph in its statutes to preserve and to present Swedish business history. That's quite a good way of presenting it, the spectrum you're, you're working on, because 7,000 companies offer quite a deep insight into Swedish history and development. So before we start to look at your archives and um, the question why to keep an archive in the first place, let's do some speed questions. Of the 7,000 company archives you keep, do you have a favorite one? It's like asking what's your favorite child, and I always say the oldest and the latest. And in our case, the oldest is from a mine in the Stockholm Archipelago in the 1400s. And the newest to arrive, we're actually right now getting 5,000 shelf meters of forest and uh, lumber history. SCA, the big uh, lumber and forestry company, has, is moving their archive. They still had a, an archive that they ran themselves. So they are moving it to us. Uh, and of course, the latest one always gets a lot of interest too. 
Okay, and um, going a bit like into more detail, do you have like a favorite record? There's a couple that always come up. We have Ericsson's first uh, ledger, uh, where you see Lars Magnus Ericsson, who uh, founded the telco company. Um, you see his handwriting in the first customers and all that. That's interesting. You have ice cream maps from throughout my childhood. But, <laughs> okay. But I think one of my favorites is a letter from Electrolux uh, in the Electrolux archive. Electrolux, the white goods company uh, that okay. works worldwide and, and they do fridges and washing machines uh, and what have you. Just after the war in the mid 50s, there's a letter from the head of Electrolux Germany who writes back to uh, his boss in Sweden And it's a two-page letter written in a friendly style so that obviously the two men know each other fairly well. And he is asking to be sent home. Take me home. I am a Swede. I didn't live through the war. I am trying to manage people who have been through hell and come back. They have been through the war and on the losing side to start with it. But for so many other reasons, I am not a good manager for them please take me home. My wife hates it and my children are becoming German, which I don't understand. <laughs> so so it, it, for me, it's a very hands-on letter, uh, a very personal letter, but on a very business-related matter. We all who work in international companies who, or who have worked internationally know the, the trouble with being an expat. Do you bring your family with you? Is it How do you make everybody comfortable? How do you create a good working scenario? Is it good to have local heads of country that are not from the country all those issues come to a head in in this letter so i i like to use that letter when we have students from universities and uh, from business education as a starting point for a discussion on expat and, and globalization yeah and indeed it's very interesting you know to to have on these different levels so a case that shows how much the environment and the context does matter no matter mm -hmm. how globalized the world is so on the opposite side in your mind do you hold some under Appreciated records? I don't know if it's underappreciated, but it's something that we know we would like to look at, but we haven't figured out how to finance it. We'd like to tell the story of Sweden, modern history, say 1900 to today, as told through its adverts. Because we know that in all these different archives that we manage for so many companies, there are ads and the ads reflect the time that they were made. So I think we could tell the story of how the family has been viewed as told through how you advertise to families. We can tell about gender issues and the emancipation of women into the workforce, as told through how they have been portrayed in, in ads. So it's an underutilized aspect of the archive, I should say. Yeah, I can imagine in particular you have these very big, famous international companies that have famous ad campaigns, you know, being quoted all over the world. Perfect. And is there... A most overrated record? Overrated? No, I don't think so. There's overused, and it's mostly overused by ourselves. We have told the story of, of the one I just talked about, Lars Magnus Eriksson and his founding ledger. I've told that too many times, so we need to update our story collection a bit. Which would you consider the biggest challenge for your stream of work now, for archivists and, and historical storytellers? threefold and i'll get back to it but i'll just give the headlines now so the one is digitalization of course we're all struggling with e-archives and how to capture everything that's born digital the other one is making sure that young companies who have been born in a digital age realize they have a history in sweden we have companies like Spotify, of course storytell the audiobook they are 20 years but in 20 years they have experienced so much it took the old industrial companies probably 50 or 100 years to experience the same. They have already history. They should use it, which is a difficult pitch to companies who sometimes are not even turning a profit yet. 
And the third challenge is to get certain types of industries more interested in their history. The industrial companies are normally fairly good at keeping their history, their, the production companies. The finance and banking world, banking and insurance, etc., are also good at keeping their history, generally speaking. But anybody who works in a consulting capability, whether they are management consultants or IT consultants or ad people or communication consultants or PR consultants, everybody who sells themselves by the hour, so to speak, to the service of other companies, they never save their history. And we've seen that they are a missing part. It's quite interesting to to look at it that way, right? Because um, among many others, consulting firms, they rely a lot on, on their reputation. So you would think they, they keep the track record of that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Why do you think it, that is that they, they don't care too much about it? We only have theories, but one hypothesis is that um, is that they are you're never as a consultant you're never better than your your latest gig. Okay. So you, okay. So you do a project, you bill it, and you put it away, and you move on to the next one. If you're an ad person or working in a communication firm, you go to the next client and the next communication project. If you're a technology consultant, you you close that project and you work on the next one with whatever company you're working with right you're always moving forward the only type of documentation you may keep is is about what you just implemented at a client's and you send that to the client or the ad campaign that you did for a a client but you send that ad campaign to the client right so you don't own it in a way yeah Yeah. you don't own your records Mm -hmm. you can't keep them okay that 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 makes sense so regarding the digitization i think that's really the struggle all over the sector would you think there is a, a company or a sector that does particularly well in doing digital archiving and in keeping recent history is there um, somebody you look up to for inspiration no we wish we uh, and this is a weak spot on our end we wish you had more software developing companies i'd like to think that software developers they are good at keeping their code they are good at keeping whatever they had before they are good uh, if you're a good developer you you comment your code even as to when you did something and or why you added something so there is a living history in a lot of program code so i'd like to know more about how the big ones microsoft google the the software part of amazon etc how they work uh, i think we could learn from them but i'm not sure it's an hypothesis yeah, right. We'll have to see. Is this as well the, the hottest topic in the archival world now? The e-archives? Yeah, I, w- I would say that, the digitalization of it. Do you have a favorite business history topic? My dad was a novelist and a filmmaker. My mom worked at a publishing house and my sister has been in the movie industry forever. So I like the business of culture and following how publishing houses and film production houses churn out creative material that stands on its own and has creative value while still making a business out of it. How do you make good literature and still make money so you could churn out another book or, or hire another novelist or support another young, aspiring writer? So I, I tend to gravitate towards those businesses. Let's go back to the major question of our talk. So before we talk how to actually run the business of business history, why should companies send their archives your way? Why to keep an archive? What's the value of this material, of this history? Exactly. And that, that's the $10 million question for everybody. If I rephrase the question a little bit, why should companies spend budget on uh, preserving their history and telling their history? And everybody who works in a company, we have to find budgets for whatever project we want to do. And our argument with our customers is that they need an archive. They need it because they need to keep track of their history and know their history. 
And why do they need to know their history? Well, they need to know their history so they can proactively use it and use it in two senses. Uh, one is just as uh, risk management. They need to know if they've done questionable things in the past, better that they know it and other people find out and, and, and tell, talk about it. They should be open about that. So there's a transparency to it in knowing your, your history. But the other one more proactively is that they use their history. History marketing is, is the term we use. They use their history proactively. It's a strategic use of heritage to promote the brand, to encourage co-workers or strengthen co-workers through the use of history. So that's the big reason why they should spend money on their history. It's better you you know your history and, and you do your own history than have somebody else do it. And there's an American company called the History Factory, I think. Mm -hmm. this, this argument of that you, you own this history already, so you own the material, so it's basically for free. You just have to look at it the right way. It's very simple, but it's very inspiring thought to look at it that way, because you have it already. Why not use it then? Exactly. You can look at your history. If you have it properly collected, all the historical documents and records, it's an asset within the company, and it's an asset that is unique to yourself. It's an asset that no other asset can replicate. It's an asset that can't be replaced if it's lost. So, it, And it's an asset that's valuable. So it lives up to what's normally seen as the four main criteria for a strategic asset. And if it's a strategic asset, then use it. And, and we see companies out there who are using it to underline today's product offerings or today's product marketing. In its simplest form, this type of history marketing or heritage marketing, you can see it in the use of the founding year that often follows the company name, established in or founded in, and we've been, where we've been around since. Probably we'll talk about that a bit later when you explain to us how, how you run your very profitable business of business <laughs> history. But there, there is the, the first strong pillar is to use a, an anniversary because it's always worth celebrating. And as well, you know, to, to not waste a crisis because you can always um, find um, proper value in crisis and looking at them from a, from a longer perspective. There have been these cases of Germany during the Second World War, and there have been so many cases where companies were able to approach their history in a constructive way and others did not. And it affected them for a very long time how they did that. And until today, there is still companies struggling to face their past and it doesn't really help them with their business or you know, there's a, in the, in the Anglo-Saxon world, there's a lot of research being done at the moment in the colonial past, the civil war past, slavery, these kinds of things. And it, it's really important for the companies to know about their history and then, you know, to be able to integrate it in, in their uh, present um, workings. Exactly. And just to pick up on, on how you describe it, you come almost from a defensive position and then you realize what you have in your history and you turn it into an offensive, proactive asset. The term history marketing was actually born in Germany. A German uh, PR man and historian, Alexander Schug, coined it. I'm not entirely sure, but I think in the late 90s or early noughts. And it sort of grew out of the process that most big German companies had to go through after reunification when the archives on the old East German end opened up and it became clear that for everybody what various companies had done during the war, during the Nazi era. So a lot of, of historians were hired had to write white papers or white books and go through corporate archives, German corp companies' histories, and just 
acknowledge what happened. Let's put it out there on the table. And in doing so, the companies found all their misdoings, but they also found a lot of good things that they had done. In the war period or before the, the great first war and after as well. And they said, now that we have acknowledged our bad things, let's also celebrate our good things. And from that grew the concept of history marketing, of using your history more proactively. So tell us how to make a business out of business history. <laughs> We are the owner of the commercial entity. The Inc. is a nonprofit organization. The nonprofit organization uh, in a Swedish context is owned by its members. The members in our case are the companies who have deposited their material with us. So in a nice circular way, it's our customers become our owners. The nonprofit organization sets the tone for everything we do, and it does so primarily through the first paragraph of our statutes. And that's the one that says, to, we exist to preserve and present Swedish business history. Now we can choose various ways to do that. And, and how we do it commercially is all done through the wholly owned subsidiary, the, the Center for Business History, Inc., or AB, as we say in Swedish. That's where we offer three types of commercial services. One is archive solutions that companies can keep their historical material with us, either at our facilities or at facilities that we help them build. And most of them keep it at our main facility in Bromma, a suburb of Stockholm, where we have these 75,000 shelf meters. We also have a, a smaller depot of 5,000 shelf meters in Uppsala, primarily focused on the medtech industry that's around there. And we are looking at opening even more. Uh, so that's the, the first, it's the archive consultancy. Secondly, we offer a service desk a help to the companies who keep uh, their material with us. If you keep your, your archives with us, you can always come to us and we'll bring it out and you can sit and research it to yourself. Or you can ask us to research for you or bring things out. Or if you have a media request, I mentioned ice cream maps or ice cream offerings uh, from past before. So Swedish Glassbolaget, GB, owned by Unilever. Every year before every summer, they always get media requests uh, on, oh, can you bring out what, did, what was the bestseller uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Uh, the evening tabloids wants to write something about it. We can field those questions for them. So that's sort of a, a research service and a run out to the archive and pick things up for you type of service. And the companies pay an annual fee for both the archive that they keep with us and then also for these research services. The third type of revenue stream we have is the editorial work, uh, everything that happens under the history marketing umbrella, uh, where we produce historical or, or anniversary stories uh, for the companies that ask us. And we charge for that. I'm not an archivist myself. I come from the PR industry and, and my daily job is very much like at a PR firm where we try to uh, get customers who wants to tell an interesting story to actually tell it. The main difference with being a PR consultant, if I compare it to those years in my, my own past, is that we never tell a fake story. We never tell a make-believe story. We never skip difficult things in a story. Uh, and that's sort of the arm's length distance we need to have to some customers that they actually have to remind themselves that they hired us for an independent and impartial recollection uh, and retelling of their story. 99.9% of all client relationships, that's not an issue. It, it, it's a theoretical issue, but it's never really a practical one. So those are the three main commercial activities that we do. And then whatever profit we make from those go to the owner, the non-profit association. 
And in the nonprofit association, we have uh, research activities that are not linked to any individual company, but that are general research. And we have a research secretariat where we have previous professor at the Royal School of Technology in Stockholm and a couple of other ones who encourage other academics to come use our facilities, who can search for funds, uh, much like in the academic world, for uh, research preparatory work. So we try to get the companies who have put their archives with us to also open them up for academic research. Again, that's living up the overarching ambition of what we do to preserve and to present Swedish business history. Those three commercial activities feed into the non-profit activity of general research. It's quite interesting because it's slightly different, for example, from a setup where you have an archive set up as a foundation, where you have trustees on the board, where you actually you achieve the same goal, right? That the archives are a separate entity from the actual company. And so preserving them is being secured, even though um, there might be changes of management in companies, because that's often a, a factor that endangers yeah. records. So you, you keep the same objective, but you do it in, in a different way. You don't have a board of trustees that ultimately then decide about the direction of research. So in this way, you self-fund basically overlapping research. That's quite interesting, I would think, for a lot of our listeners. So do you think that's a unique structure in Europe or have you come across other um, organizations doing the same thing? We've seen some associations, business associations in, in Germany and France and Spain and Italy that work together. Uh, some, like you mentioned, uh, Stiftungs or, or foundations. But none, no player really like us, and we wish there were more. You mentioned History Factory already. History Factory, we, for us, they are the U.S. equivalent of what we do. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your approach to Swedish um, financial history. Let's take SEB uh, with its 100-plus uh, year of history, which basically follows Sweden's modern development. They have their archives with us and have had for a long time. They approach us every now and then and say, hey, can you help us with images for a, an anniversary book, or can you help make the anniversary book? Last year, the communication department came to us and said, hey, we are looking at refining our vision statement a little bit. We are thinking of writing the following, and they gave us the proposed statements. And they said, but we don't want to write this unless we can back it up historically. If we say that this is what we are and what we strive to be, is this what we used to be? If it's not, then we should know that, at least in, because that means a, we're changing course. And But hopefully they said you can back it up. So we did a lot of research into their history. And, and yes, they had backing for what they said their new mission and vision uh, statements were going to be. But as a side result of all that research, we said, by, by the way, we can actually tell your story pretty quickly now as an onboarding thing for your uh, new employees. Uh, so we did one episode podcast where I talk about their history. What about the banking crisis in Sweden of 1992? Is it worthy for researchers coming to your center to see which records you have? Or do they still have to be a bit patient for a few more years? If uh, academic researchers contact us, we would be happy uh, if they did. Talking about the banking crisis, the banking crisis of 92 and, and the years preceding and after shaped so much of Sweden's last 25 years that it's, it's definitely need time for thorough academic research. So we are in the process of trying to find academics who would like to do this and encourage them to do that and help them seek funding. 
we are also talking to the individual banks themselves and saying, hey, this might be happening. Would you be willing to let independent researchers step into uh, your archives and look at these specific times? Uh, the Swedish banking landscape, a little simplified, we have four main commercial banks, SEB, Handelsbanken, Nordea, and Swedbank, where the first two are classic commercial banks. Uh, Nordea is a uh, today a commercial bank, but is the result of various state banks. And Swedbank is, is the, uh, the culmination of the savings banks movement. But those four banks, plus then the incoming uh, foreign banks, and then uh, some financial upstarts, that's the Swedish banking landscape today. In 1992, it looked different. But since we have those four main banks as our customers, we would have material, we're sure, uh, on what happened, day-by-day uh, day play almost. But we think it's also very interesting to see how it happened and who did the banks interact with on the government side? How did policy affect or how did they try to shape policy? We'd love to know how the bad bank, there was a bad bank, a temporary one formed to take care of all the, the bad loans and the, and the bad debt that emerged. Uh, how did that form? Because we've understood that uh, we were the training program for a lot of bad banks. So a lot of that we'd like to know more about. So that's an area that we are, we're right now trying to find academics to dive into. I think that there will be some of our listeners being interested in the same top, topic, like <laughs> particularly the laboratory of, of a bad bank in order to then emerge as, as a good one. As a small conclusion, I was thinking earlier what you said about how ACB approached you about their history and how this shows a little bit that the way in which you can write your own history or approach it seems to be much more open, at the same time fragmented, because there's so many different formats. There, There's new ones and old ones. It's not this linear storytelling of having a big volume being researched, which I personally, I, I do love it because it, it gives access to um, different audiences, you know, and, and, and it opens up to different ways of looking at, at history and its value. But how would you feel about it? Do you think that that's actually true? Or is it still that the fact that you need to have a really good comprehensive look at history before you can actually use it? You have to know your history. But apart from that, I, I completely agree with you that there are so many ways to tell a story. We'd like to say internally, at least, that it's one history, but many ways to tell it. One approach we have is to help the companies we work with to set a heritage statement. The heritage statement always starts the same way and it ends uniquely to the company. And the heritage statement always starts with the history of our company is really the history of. And how you choose to end that sentence gives the perspective of the story you want to tell. And it helps shape whatever you want to focus in the perspective of your, of your storytelling. And then you need to be adamant about not cherry-picking all the good stuff, but you need to include the full story, etc., and all those things. But if you have that heritage statement, you can then choose to package whatever stories you find in whatever way you want to. It's the most standard of communication questions. Who are we talking to and why? And then you choose the channel or the packaging, based on how you answer that question. Ica is, is the leading food retailer in Sweden. We did their 100-year anniversary, the heritage history part of it. And they said, we'd like to remind all our shop owners, all the people who run our, our stores, and uniquely to Ica, all the people who run the stores actually own their own stores. So we'd like to remind them of the history. And we talked about that and said, okay, we can probably write fairly short Length articles if we all agree on the following heritage statement 
Uh, we agreed on one, and then we said, let's write short texts, and let's put that all in a big fat book. Uh, one of those beautiful coffee table books with a lot of pictures. And then we looked at each other, uh, the client and us, and, and we said, by the way, which person who runs a food store has the time to read a big, thick coffee table book? And where is the coffee table? <laughs> if, if, to start with, where's the coffee table? And if it's a big, fat book, where do you then put it even? So then we said, well, let's figure out a different packaging. We said, let's take the exact same perspective and almost the exact same content, but just split it up into four magazines that look like a popular history magazine or one of the magazines you see in a, in a newspaper stand. Uh, let's create that. Uh, we'll keep the same content. We'll do four of them, one for each quarter of a century that the company has existed. We'll send it out throughout the anniversary year, one each quarter. We'll send out 15 copies to each store. So the format and the packaging was decided based on who was going to receive it and the situation that they were in. So again, basic communication questions. Who are we talking to? Why and where are they when we talk to them? And, and the goal picture, if you like that, or the, the visualization of how the history was going to be used went from being a coffee table book that was dusty on somebody's nightstand and never read. And the visualization we had for it was was very well-thumbed, greasy magazine copies on a kitchen table in the store where the employees eat. And maybe some of them were stolen to by the employees because they thought it was interesting enough to take home. That would be a success case for us. So that's what we did. So do you have a favorite channel, a favorite project? You mentioned the magazine, but do you have something you, you really like, like a favorite business history, book, magazine, channel, podcast, video streamer a lot of them that we've done i'm particular to the eka magazines and then we also did a magazine for sweat bank and they celebrated 200 years of the savings bank history and i'm I, i'm fond of that one because it has very little to do with sweat bank it has more to do with the development of sweden and more development of savings bank and the bank function and why that is important for companies and indiv individuals they were very open to minimizing their own brand instead focusing on the the importance of banks and savings banks particularly but then i have a couple of things that i'd like to do i'd like to do a proper drama series for tv i'd love to do a a dramatized podcast series that take it, the history of a company and then and then spins it for me one of the best tv series of late was uh, halt and catch fire amc production in america shown on hbo in, in europe Halt and Catch Fire is loosely based on the origin story of Dell, okay. a Texas company. But it over four seasons, the people who wrote it obviously did their research on the IT industry in America, on the development of the web, of the first IT boom of the late 90s. And they set four characters in motion in that. I think it's one of the best corporate storytellings I've seen. And it really shares corporate history. I'll keep that in mind. So last question, your topics, where are they headed from here? Will you have to look at the lumber history or something else coming up first? Well, on the storytelling part, we, we are a couple of Swedish old school industrial companies have anniversaries coming up. Atlas Copco, who, who has done industrial equipment for 125 years. Bo Liden, who's done gold and other minerals and metals mining in sweden they're turning 100 so i think it's back to the base industries for me and, and for the the colleagues that i work with uh and the, and the forestry industry is part of that sweden's history if you want to really summarize it is the history of mining and forests 
so it's really getting to the core of things in the next couple of years. That's great. So you, you will go back to the basics. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Um, in a very digitalized world, it's nice to go back to the basics sometimes. <laughs> exactly. There is always a trend that the, the more modern you get or the more forward-looking, there there is a, a tendency or a trend to, to go a bit like back to the, the more basic things. There are fun similarities to make between then and now, even when you look at base, base old base uh, fundamental industries. So the the mining gold mines of Boliden up in northern Sweden, near a, a city called Skellefteå, they were the hugest gold mines found in Europe, almost worldwide, in the early 1920s. An hour's drive towards the coast, they put a smelting plant, uh, and the city of Skellefteå grew, and they had problems with getting people to work there. So they had to entice them to move to Skellefteå. They had to get electricity for everybody. They had to get housing for everybody, infrastructure for everybody. So that is a story that everybody who, who lives in Skellefteå and Rönnskär, where the smelting work is, they know. Interestingly, we have today's development of electric cars with battery factories. Northvolt is a Swedish uh, fairly young company that does batteries for, among other things, electric cars. They have their big plant based in Skellefteå, opened just recently. They are working with the local municipality and getting housing for all the people that are now moving to Skellefteå to work there. They have problems with infrastructure. They have problems with electricity to the plant. So you all of a sudden, 100 years later, you see the same themes playing out again. Perfect. So we'll keep in touch about how, how that research goes. Thank you very much, Anders, for, for sharing your insight with us. Thank, Thank you. you, Carmen, for having me. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org. 